Kubernetes community, and welcome to the Pod Cuddle Podcast. Tyler, we are on week three. Um, great to be back on the show. We're getting really good feedback from people. How are you this week? I'm uh, do, doing well. Doing well. Yeah, it's uh, lots of stuff going on. Lots of stuff going on in the community. Um, you know, for anybody, hopefully, people got their submissions in for KubeCon and Cloud Native Con. That was this last Monday. Um, so hopefully, if you wanted to speak, you got your submissions in. I know. Um, Kelsey Hightower and uh, and Michelle, who are who are running it, said they got I want to say like eight hundred plus submissions. So hopefully that'll be a, another really really good show. Did you get a chance to get any submissions in this year? No, didn't get any in this year. Um, but I'm pretty excited to see uh, which ones get picked because uh, I remember last year the the sessions were were really really great. Yeah, no, they were great. They were great um, for the European one. Just you know, three four months ago and. Uh, Man, there's just so much that's that's changing. Hey, real quick, we are going to do this show is going to be a little bit different because we, for the first time, are doing an interview. Uh, we have a really good interview coming up, um, so we're going to keep the the intro to the show a little shorter. Um, but we will say we we recorded the interview um, ahead of recording this podcast. Um, we go into a ton of depth with Vincent Betts from Vincent Betts from uh, Red Hat, who's a colleague of ours, but works on a ton of the open container standards and so forth. So you'll definitely want to take a listen. You may have to listen a couple of times because we go into a lot of different topics. Um, Tyler, real quick, let's uh, any interesting news for the week that's going on in the Kubernetes community? Yeah, I think the big news this week was uh, was actually from Red Hat this time as the Red Hat and Microsoft you know, updated our uh, we updated our alliance with Microsoft. Uh, and really, it's focused on a couple areas, things that, that you would expect, things like, um, you know, running OpenShift on Azure Stack and, you know, SQL Server on OpenShift. Uh, but I think I think the big one for me, big piece of the announcement was uh, bringing Windows Server containers to OpenShift. So uh, if you're if you're not familiar with the kind of where that's at upstream with Kubernetes, it's still in a uh, you know kind of alpha uh, setup because there's obviously some things which which we talked about with Vince that are different between Windows and, and Linux. So some additional work is being done in the Kubernetes community. So so we're partnering up with uh, Microsoft to get that work finished upstream. Uh, and that way we can bring it into uh, OpenShift as well as provide commercial support with them. So that way customers can have you know one platform to run Windows and Linux containers. Yeah. And, and two quick things and, and help me clarify some stuff. So you talk about ups, upstream. Is this work that that will only be relevant to Red Hat shops and, and Microsoft shops, or is is this something that that the rest of the community will get to to benefit from? No, this is this is when I say upstream. I mean in the in the actual open source uh, Kubernetes code. Uh, so if if you're not kind of familiar with with Red Hat's flow, we we have the upstream stuff like like Docker, Moby, and and Kubernetes, which uh, we we contribute a lot to those get brought down into our open source um, project for OpenShift. So that's what we call OpenShift origin. So you can use that. It's fully open source. And then that is, you know, productized and supported as the OpenShift container platform. So this work is all going to happen upstream in Kubernetes. Uh, so anyone that's running Kubernetes, there's, you know, some other companies are already um, providing some of the work upstream on the windows stuff too. So we're, we're just going to be, you know, working with them further to, to bring this hopefully to fruition uh, pretty quickly. Okay, cool. So there'll be a commercial element to this that uh, you know Red Hat and Windows customer or Red Hat and Microsoft customers will be able to take advantage of. But but the good news um, equally is 
you know, this just means additional engineering effort that's going into the the open community work that that will be available to lots of different implementations and so forth. The, the other question I had was, um, you know, it mentioned in the press release that this is for Windows 2016, uh, you know, lots of existing Windows that's out there. Is there a reason this was kind of specified around Windows 2016? Is it just because it's the newest, or um, is there there more technical reasons why this is 2016 specific? Yeah, the the 2016 is the first Windows version that brought forth the full Windows container um, technology. So prior, if you're doing any sort of container-ish type technology pre-Windows 2016, there it's kind of a uh, you know, put hacked together thing of, of different features in Windows to make that work. So Microsoft, you know, seeing the future and realizing how big containers were going to be actually built um, containers as a as a actual thing inside Windows and that shows up in Windows 2016. So as like we say in, in on the Linux side, there's no actual thing called a container in Linux. It's a group of Linux primitives kind of put together. Um, on the Windows side, there actually is with 2016 a thing called Windows containers as okay, part of cool. the OS. Okay, cool. So I think the takeaway from that is if you think you're going to want to run Windows containers and you're looking for something that's going to kind of be officially blessed by Microsoft, which is you know probably what you're looking for, you're going to run .NET applications or whatever, um, the, the Windows container technology, the all of the Linux emulation, Windows container stuff uh, is in 2016, and that's really kind of where you want to be looking to uh, to run those implementations. Cool. Got it. Okay. Listen, um, let's jump into our interview with Vincent. Uh, really good interview, uh, lots of depth, and you know, Vincent is, again, one of the core contributors, uh, engineering contributors to these projects. So he's got a ton of insight into how the projects have evolved, uh, what the standards look like, why it's taken um, you know, a little longer to get all these standards together and a uh, really, really good interview. So let's go ahead and jump to that. And we're back and very excited to have Vincent Batts on the show with us. Vincent is a colleague of Tyler and I's here at Red Hat, principal software engineer from the Office of Technology, working on container architecture at Red Hat. But more importantly, he is heavily involved with the OCI, the Open Container Initiative, um, has been working on contributions to Docker for a long time, really kind of our resident guru around what's going on in the container space. So Vincent, uh, excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for being on. Yeah, glad to be here. Let's jump into it. We want to talk about a whole bunch of different topics around container standards. And you know, there's a lot of them out there right now, or at least it feels like there's a lot of different options that people are talking about. So the last couple of years, you've been heavily involved with this space. Can you give us a sense of what are the different projects you've been working on and, and why does it feel like there are still so many different container standards and projects and stuff that are that are being evolved? Sure. There's been, over the last five to almost 10 years at this point, there's been a few different either de facto standards and then at some point competing standards. Uh, and even with the Open Containers Initiative, which has gathered a lot of attention, and at this point, as far as standards go, I'd say the most attention, is really took the approach like the X XKCD cartoon where, you know, they say, what, there's 13 competing standards? We should make one to unify them all. And now that you have 14 competing standards. Because <laughs> um, at first there was LXC, and while there was a lot of gnarly things to not like about it, uh, it did the job, and many people used it. And, and even given some of the options of the later years, uh, there's been 
a number of companies that have switched back to using LXC because while it was gnarly, you could you could configure every little piece and part of it. And then Docker came along 2013 and really made it easy to use containers and made the UI, the user interface and user experience something where it was very approachable. And then has has grown into all kinds of offerings as far as a, a tool and a suite of tools would go that become very, very configurable and put you almost back into having so many bells and you know knobs and dials to, to configure. And so both LXC and Docker for some time were their own de facto standards, depending on what it was that you were doing with containers. And de facto just being when people would go to spin something up, uh, it might be written in somebody's docs to use LXC. It might be written in some other project's docs to use Docker. Uh, so it just, you know, it, get, it gathered usage broadly in this way. But as companies were either wanting to do integrations with or offer features to the projects, those projects or companies behind those projects didn't see was the direction for the project, there became something wanting and there became a growing list of folks within the community, either companies or individuals that were looking for, like back in 2014, 2015, uh, they were looking for like the ability to sign, they were looking for the ability to have content addressability, they were looking for the ability to share and have more options as far as distribution, like you could have delegation and not have everything go through a central distribution point or repository. And some of these features that are still ongoing conversations were why the application container spec, the AppC spec, uh, was produced by the, some folks at CoreOS and a few others. And so that specification was the first more of a standard or spec approach to it. And it gathered a lot of attention and Rocket Rocket achieved a lot of the necessary bits for different people, but it was a completely different approach from Docker. Uh, there were some some overlap points, but it was, a, it was a different feeling, it was a different experience, and it checked off boxes for some of those that were using and adopting containers that Docker wasn't or LXC wasn't. So there really weren't able to unify in that way. And it was probably about six months after AppC launched that the Open Containers Initiative was kicked off. And it was, from the beginning, a collaborative effort from folks from CoreOS that had worked on AppC, as well as like the donation pieces that came from Docker's code base, Microsoft, Google, Red Hat, and others. OCI was, is very much intended to be the one to unify them, and there were a lot of concepts drawn from AppC as well as from the basis of Docker from whence it came. And it's been, honestly, two years of work to arrive at not breaking the backwards compatibility that folks have gotten used to using Docker for, while also allowing us the flexibility to bring in the the concepts that were needed for alternate signing frameworks and alternate distribution frameworks and alternate runtimes, even like for the runtime such that it could run on Solaris or it could run on Windows or it could be running on Windows but running a Linux container and a lot of these flexibilities that hadn't been fully vetted out. It was a very lengthy and verbose conversation over the last couple of years but is intended to unify that. And so now what's interesting is that part of that sprawl that you, you mentioned that there's so many standards out there or uh, at this point, what's leading to that feeling is that there's so many tools available, it's going to somewhat be 
a trend that I think you'll see continue. Now that there's a spec out there of here's how these parts interoperate, or here's the expected workflow of like the runtime, or here's how you produce an image, and here's how you can like pull it down and then convert it into a runtime, something that a runtime can use, that you're very likely to see many different tools show up that will solve many different use cases. But the commonality will now be that, you know, can it produce an OCI image? Can it consume an OCI image? Does it know how to take an OCI image and convert it to a runtime that I expect, you know, valid runtime? And then from there, you can layer on top of it anything else you need. Now, as Docker is continuing to reshape itself with the Moby rename and splitting out ContainerD into its own project that's in the CNCF, ContainerD is focusing on OCI interoperability as well as how to convert and interoperate with existing Docker formats. Tools like Cryo are OCI-focused first, and then after that, it's interoperating with existing like Docker images. Let's sort of stop there just because we... We, sure. I mean, you, you cover a ton of stuff, but let's kind of break down some things for people. So sure. if I understand it right, you had, like you said, between LXC and Docker and, and what Rocket was trying to do, lots of different approaches. You could almost do anything you wanted to, but you couldn't do anything you wanted to just with one of them. You kind of were picking and choosing. So now what OCI has sort of said is, you know, here's the, the list of things that, that people were wanting. Everything from signing to inspecting content to having multiple registries, not necessarily being tied tied to a specific OS. That's where we are today with with OCI is that we have this official 1.0 spec that's going to kind of allow people to say all those things that you wanted to do great, they're all there, but we now have one consistent approach that you can go about doing that. Is that a good summary? That's a good high-level summary. The, the thing that, that I guess is almost misleading is, and is that when you get into actually reading it, OCI is also just a spec. It's, it's, there, there's some code to help validate, but it's, it's more or less documents of where those commonality points are. So there's, okay. there's, there's not, it's not like here's this new tooling framework and it's, it's the integral part to every single piece of software that's up. It's more or less, if I'm using Docker for this use case and I'm using Container D or Cryo or Kubernetes or whatever, OpenShift, like whatever, all the different tools and container things that are out there. If I have a build system that's producing in one way and I have another system that's needing to run in the other way, how do I know that what I'm what, what needs to go from system A to system B can be compatible? And that's been one of the tricky parts for a long time is that you, you might produce uh, an image and even within Docker, there was a period of time where if you had different versions across an environment, you might actually have images built that had different configuration metadata, depending on which version of Docker they were running. So it's become like, can I build something from this host and copy it, move it over, push it to a registry or whatever, and pull it into an entirely different tooling framework and have any hopes that it's compatible or deployment to different runtimes? And for that, yes, OCI is intended to be the, the, the wrap-up that you know, you can produce an OCI image and import it into Rocket and it will work. You can produce a, you can have different build frameworks. That makes that makes a ton of sense and, and explains a lot of why two years ago when, you know, it seemed like, hey, CoreOS had contributed some code and Docker contributed some code. This stuff's just going to kind of work out. That explains why it's taken a couple of years now to get to where we are today to, like you said, we have this, this specification and these guidance because when you're trying to make 
things interoperable, when you're trying to take all these different use cases and corner cases and put them together, that's not going to happen immediately. So that's really good. Tyler, I know you wanted to dig into um, some of the things around um, this new stuff with, with CRIO. You want to you jump into that? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the interesting things uh, as people look at, at Kubernetes and, and today, they think Kubernetes and Docker right together and that's Kubernetes is orchestrating the containers and, and Docker is running them. But now with these more standardized approaches coming out, OCI and, and ways to possibly swap Docker out, there's uh, you know, there's this new approach and then there's this new thing called Cryo. Vince, can you talk a little bit about uh, Cryo? Sure. So it's something that's been in the Kubernetes incubator for a little while now. And it originally was intended to just be a thin wrapper upon Run-C. So Run-C is now in the Open Containers initiative uh, is the runtime implementation. It almost feels like the ch root shroot command, but can do container primitives on Linux. And so Cryo initially was just that piece of it. It can actually run more than one Run-C instance. And to step back just a bit, like you were saying, there's all these different options and kind of the bind between Kubernetes and Docker has been shifting and shaping over the years because when Kubernetes first came out of the gate and it was calling to a container runtime, no matter how much they wanted to try and keep it generic, there were certain concepts or certain workflows that were built into the architecture of Kubernetes that depended on the Docker workflow. Whether that was you tell it to run something and it would automatically fetch it from some remote place, depended on the hub, Docker Docker IO hub, or it was pushing it or any, any number of things. And so they had been working for some years within the community uh, for some, some releases, I mean, within the Kubernetes community on something called CRI, the Container Runtime Interface. And it was it's almost a complement to certain things like the OCI in that it's not binding itself to any number of outside specs. It's just reducing and drawing a very fine, drawing a ribbon around when Kubernetes talks to any container runtime, these are the functions it expects to be able to, to do. And so it took several releases as they were sculpting down what it was that when, when Kubernetes calls to Docker, what it, what it is that it's even doing um, and drawing that into a single API point. And that CRI has gotten more and more robust and grown over the years. But as of Kubernetes 1.6 was when they flipped the switch from Docker, the container runtime, being the golden child to being Docker's called through a CRI shim. So all of the container runtime interactions are going through this common API endpoint. And the way they are doing this is using gRPC and a socket. And so any of those CRI implementations, all they have to do is produce a Unix socket on the, the host where Kubernetes is running like in the kubelet. They produce a Unix socket, and so you pass that to the Kubernetes daemon as it's starting up kubelet services, saying, here's my CRI socket, and it knows how to call anything that, that C it expects that CRI interface to do. So now there's like a rocket lit CRI shim. There's a container D CRI shim. There's a Docker CRI shim, uh, and that's where Cryo got its name, Cry CRIO for OCI. And it just produces effectively only the things that, that Kubernetes needs to call to. 
uh, and now Cryo as a project is, is growing this command line tool that's called KPod. The name on that may or may not change, but KPod is a daemonless way to interact with what Cryo is doing on the back end. Uh, and it does have much more of a user interface like people would expect. So you can run like KPod images and see what all has been downloaded by the by KPod. You can clean up those images. You can pull and push. You can I think they're working on ways to just like run things directly. Uh, but it's it's all like if, as an ops person, if you're if you're using Kubernetes that's calling to Cryo, that part is transparent to you. But if you needed to actually debug what is loaded and what's on disk, uh, you could use tools like that Cryo uh, KPod command. So for you know today, you, where you do something like, oh, I have a you know a bunch of Kubernetes hosts run. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this pod. I go on that host and do Docker PS, Docker logs, all those type of things. That's where KPod would come in. Yeah, there's there's a number of options. Then you could at this point you could do Cryo cuddle and like list. The, the containers running, you do K, KPod PS. Since container D, Docker, Cryo, KPod, all of these things are also using run C underneath. There's even functions within run C where you can query it for looking on disk for state. Uh, so run C PS has information as well. So there is becoming a lot of overlap in the tools, but it's in, it's intended to make for a, a, a smooth transition for having like different tools for different use cases, but you can approach them all common in a common way. Yeah. So, you know, Tyler, I know we, we talk about it a lot, but it, it sounds to me like, you know, we now have standards for image container image and, and inter, you know, a way to make them interoperable. And then, and that's on the, the applicant or the, you know, the sort of the container side and, and, what CRI and then all these implementations like CRIO and KPOD and, and others are trying to do is make sure at the orchestrator level, we're going to have that same level of flexibility plus levels of interoperability, which, you know, while it still seems like there's a lot of options out there, you know, the goodness is we're getting away from people only being able to, you know, use one implementation or one vendor specific way of doing things or sort of being locked into a specific workflow. So a little bit more uh, optionality, but a lot more flexibility for end users, operators, and, and so forth. Hey, Vincent, one last thing. I know you're not specifically working on uh, Windows containers. A lot of what we've been talking about has been very Linux-specific. Can you give us some insight, though, into if somebody says, hey, you know, I, I've known containers to be very Linux-centric for a long time, but it seems like Windows is coming around. Can you give us some insight? Is, you know, a Windows container exactly like a Linux container? Are there some things, uh, you know, is there a lot under the covers in Windows that are different, or is there going to be a lot that's different from, from an end-user perspective if they have a you know, a container file, whatever, whatever, you know, format that might be in. Yeah. So there's been a lot of, a lot of work and effort and collaboration, even within like the open containers initiative and back uh, when we were working mostly on Docker for like distribution of the images. So when it got down to the, like the kernel level, the, the actual runtime of the containers, that work was a lot of, even, even from all the folks that I worked with directly at, at Microsoft, there was a certain point where those pieces just were obscured to how, how, how the Container would get run, and having tools like Run C at the very last step helped them a lot because then they could they could write that last little step that went from user space to kernel to then executing your program. And so over the years, fascinating amounts of work. I can't even imagine uh, the amount of folks involved uh, from the Windows side. They've produced effectively what's like a growing matrix of options as far as Windows containers go. Because initially, running containers on Windows was uh, almost like a thin hypervisor. The, so you'd work you're running 
running a Linux runtime on a Windows host because transparently there was a very almost like a shim hypervisor uh, for just that container instance. In the meantime, Windows now has a pretty staggering amount of Linux emulation, so you can run Linux applications on Windows kernel without even needing a hypervisor. I don't think that in the container space they're using that nearly as much. And then some of the recent versions of the NT kernel, like what you'd see in the Windows server, the actual kernel itself has container primitives. And different different than the Linux way of cobbling together various kernel primitives, unsharing namespaces and setting up C groups and all these kind of stuff, and like an order in which that you have to unshare namespaces in a certain order and have hooks to do like network setup at certain times. And from what I understand in the Windows container space is more you make a call, like a syscall to the kernel for a container and it hands you back the entire constructed space. So what happens in between that time is kind of all kernel magic and you're just handed back a place to exec your container into or exec your runtime into. And so now at this point, containers on Windows could be one of a couple of different options. You could be running Linux containers, either in a hypervisor or possibly not in a hypervisor, or you could be running actual Windows compiled binaries on a Windows kernel in a container. And in the like in the OCI space, there was a fair amount of work going into making sure that concepts are split out, UIDs, and how all the different usernames and everything are, are managed and making sure there's flexibility there for all those pieces in the runtime. But on the distribution side, on the OCI image side, making sure that there's effectively now, instead of just tarballs of file systems, that there were a variety of choices or flexibility in being able to say, like, here's the distribution of my image, and in it, you know, here's the checksum of some object, and here's its mime type or media type, because they were able to use TARs, TAR archives for the files in some ways, but they, for Windows, I understand that they have to also ship effectively a ref log to be able to replay against the registry of the remote host due to how they handle copy on write file systems, some of their newer file systems. So they're having like additional media types that were needed. Uh, so that's one of those examples of the flexibility needed to where you can now distribute this thing with additional objects addressed by their checksum and their MIME type. Uh, and on a Windows host, when it pulls that in, it knows how to like unpack the file system, replay the registry information, and still be able to cobble together what it needs to run the runtime later. So I've honestly not put my hands on the Windows container images or runtime at all, but have more or less been working blind through talking with folks that are working on that technology and what kind of flexibilities are needed in a, in a standard so that they can still interact. We can all use the same standard uh, and not block out each other's use cases. Again, it, it, it kind of goes back to the the incredible amount of work that has to go on to, to make all of those low-level things kind of transparent to make sure the use cases are there. Tyler, I think we're going to have to uh, to get some folks from Microsoft on the show and kind of dig into you know the, the equivalent sort of Linux thing. So if people want to be in depth in, in how Windows containers are going to work, they uh, they get a sense of what that means from a from a Windows OS perspective. Vincent, thank you so much for being on. We we could we could talk about this stuff for for a very long time. Your your expertise is uh, you know people can go take a look. We'll we'll put all the, the repos to things you're working on in GitHub. But thank you so much. It's it's First off, thank you for all the work that you guys have been doing trying to make this standard such that people have choice, people can feel confident that whatever whatever they sort of bring to a container environment is going to work with other environments. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show and and, uh, and sharing your expertise with us today. All right, Tyler, great interview with Vincent there. Um, let's do what we always do. Let's hit our question of the week. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about one that's kind of container specific. And again, it's something that probably we won't answer 
in a couple of quick sound bites, but we'll definitely want to give you a pointer. So the question is, there's this concept, uh, you know, in containers, we no longer have hypervisors. We have a host OS. And then there's a part of the container that, you know, kind of contains a part of the OS. So is there anything that people have to be aware of in terms of, you know, the OS that's the container OS and the host OS? Is that something that, you know, they can be independent? Should they match? Any guidance you can give or any good pointers you have for, you know, how people should think about that? Sure. Well, I think the the thing to realize, like you said, about um, the containers OS, if you will. So inside the, you know, people, you think about it like it's a a virtual machine where you have an actual full operating system running inside there. Uh, With a container, the the base container image is the bundled contents of the the operating system user space. So it's libraries. uh, And then if you include language runtimes, things like that. So it's they match up with what that operating system usually uses. So which C library, you know, which type of packaging format or um, uh, software implementation method. So if you're using Red Hat, it's RPMs uh, versus something Debian, Dpackage, uh, all those different types of things. So do they have to match the the host OS? No, that's that's kind of one of the nice things about containers is you can kind of yeah mix and match. Um, but the same way you choose a host OS, you may want to choose your container OS for, and you may choose it for different reasons. So, you know, um, it may be size, right? So you just want the smallest possible image. You might want to use something like Alpine. Um, but then there's, um, you may be concerned about security or, um, you know, or standardization or things like that or support. Um, then you may want to use something like uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, image or another supported one or yeah there, there's there's no there's no oh always match the os or or don't ever match it or any you know or always use this specific image as your base um kind of guidance it depends on your use cases uh there's actually um scott mccarty did a a, a really in-depth blog post comparing the container oh the container image um, options and kind of what all the components on there. And there's even a big chart kind of lining them up next to each other. Okay. So uh, I think we'll, we'll put a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes. So you could check that out to see kind of how the type of things you could look at when you're making that decision. Yeah, no. And I think the, the guidance, like you said, there, there isn't, uh, it, technically you can make, um, you know, different things work in the container OS that, you know, user space and, and the host OS, um, but it is definitely something that people should get educated on, especially for their specific environment, because um, you may have some some mismatches or incompatibilities that that you weren't aware of. Um, you know, in your environment, your operating team may only want to support applications that that run a certain OS, or your um, third party application may only be supported on you know may have dependencies on an OS. So, if nothing else, it's definitely worth getting educated about um, either you know, matching or not matching your container OS and your host OS. And uh, like you mentioned, there's a really good blog article with lots of, of charts and things that kind of give you the, some of that education. So definitely worth a, worth a read. Well, listen, man, um, this was a really good show. Uh, great opportunity for us to, to interview some experts in the community. We'll definitely be doing that more as we go forward. Um, folks, thanks so much for listening. The, the turnout and the feedback has been really good so far. Um, if you like the show, give it a listen. 
listen. Um, tell a friend. Uh, give us a rating or you know some stars on on iTunes or whatever uh, podcasting tool that you like to use. Um, with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. Tyler, uh, great show. Uh, we will be back again next Monday, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.